Hello, and welcome to On the Case. I'm Michael DePoe Wilson, your host, and thank you for joining us this month. Now, we have another special episode of On the Case this month. We will be featuring a recent entry in the Frost series again. Now, as a reminder, the Frost series is a case report series that is published every month in Anesthesiology News. In fact, it is always the last article in every issue of the magazine. And it is published on the website every month as well. For this episode, I'll be discussing the case report titled Malignant Hypothermia Crisis in a Pediatric Patient with the author, Dr. Matthew Schachner. Dr. Schachner is an anesthesiologist in the Department of Anesthesiology at the Anesthesiology Consultants Exchange PC in Cleveland, Tennessee. I'd also like to thank Dr. Sonia Vaida, who is the clinical editor for the Frost series. And I do recommend that you read the case report as it does make an excellent companion for our interview this month. And you can find a link to the case report in the episode notes. Okay, without further ado, let's get to this episode's case with our guest, Dr. Schachner. The Anesthesiology News e-newsletter is a free resource from the most widely read publication for the specialty. Get the latest clinical news and multimedia content delivered right in your inbox. Go to anesthesiologynews.com enews to sign up today. Okay, and welcome to the show, uh, Dr. Matt Schachner. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. So could you, uh, just for starters, could you tell us what this case is about? We had a uh, young child come on in for a dental cleaning, and they ended up uh, developing a malignant hyperthermic crisis uh, during it, which was uh, very surprising. And uh, we actually handled it quite well, so I thought it'd be something nice to talk about. So why did you decide to write this case report? Well, uh, malignant hyperthermia is really one of those life-threatening topics we get talked about all the time during residency and training. But really, most of us don't actually have a case about it, uh, maybe once or twice in our careers. So I thought it'd be a nice little refresher to talk about a bit. And since it was so nicely managed, uh, I thought it would be beneficial. And what was your role specifically in the case? Well, I was the attending anesthesiologist during the case, and I had a nurse anesthetist in the room the whole time as well. Um, and I was the one that actually came in and recognized that they were having this uh, crisis, and I was in charge of all the management during and afterwards. So before we get into the details, could you give us a, just a quick summary? Uh, I know you talked about it a little bit right at the beginning, but just a little bit about the actual uh, condition. Yeah, absolutely. Um, malignant hyperthermia, it's an autosomal dominant condition that has uh, what we call a variable penetrant, which actually means that the signs and symptoms of MH are completely different every time it occurs, uh, even with people that have this uh, same genetic condition. It really only happens in about one in 100,000 um, anesthetics and is treated with uh, medications uh, like dantrolene or ianodex, as well as uh, supporting uh, the rest of the care and treating signs and symptoms of the actual episode. Okay. And, and you said this is something that typically an anesthesiologist will only see a couple of times in their career? Oh, absolutely. Um, I messaged a few of my attendings at my residency program after it happened, and one of them is in his 60s, one in his 30s, one in his uh, 50s, and uh, one of them has uh, seen a case of it their whole career, and the other two uh, were just pretty surprised I had one so early in my uh, attending lifehood. <laughs> 
Yeah, and it gave you an, a good opportunity to write about it, right? And, and and tell everybody else about what you experienced. So that's pretty cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, why don't we go ahead and get into the details of the case then? Um, so, you know, obviously you wrote this great uh, case report for uh, the magazine that we published in, uh, in January. And, um, and so, you know, there's a lot of details in there, but just kind of coming from your perspective, um, you know, as, you know, as you experienced the case and, and identified what was going on, it's nice to get some background there. So the first question I have is, you know, what was it, what, you know, what was happening when you first, um, saw that this, this case was being presented? Well, really, uh, the patient was just having a really routine dental cleaning under general anesthesia, uh, just because she couldn't tolerate this in uh, an office-based setting. Uh, we do many of these uh, every week and never seem to have any issues. Um, we induce uh, general anesthesia the normal way, uh, mask ventilating with some nitrous oxide and fibrofluorine. And then I place an IV, we intubated the patient. And at that point, honestly, everything was looking completely normal and they uh, began doing the cleaning. And when was the exact moment that you realized that something something else was going on here? Well, it seemed to be about two to three minutes after they started the cleaning. Um, her end title uh, carbon dioxide, uh, end title CO2, started to gradually kind of get a little bit higher. Um, it was starting in the 50s and 60s, and then all of a sudden her heart rate got really fast. And we kind of assumed she was just having a normal sympathetic response to just a dental cleaning for a child. You know, it's painful. We get it. Uh, but then her end title CO2 uh, got up into the upper 90s and her heart rate got into the 180s. And at that point, I uh, kind of uh, figured out that something unique was actually happening. Um, and this really uh, just seemed to be more like a malignant hyperthermic episode versus just uh, some uh, painful response. Okay, yeah. And, you know, you were able to identify it. Um, I mean, it seems like once you realized something was wrong, you were able to uh, um, pretty quickly diagnose it as malignant hypothermia. Um, you know, what, what were the options that you kind of felt like you had at your disposal in that moment? Um, you know, were you immediately, um, you, you kind of knew exactly what you needed to do and you went that direction or were there like, was it a more broad approach at first? Oh, at first, immediately, I figured I should call for some help, uh, just in case it was a malignant hyperthermic episode, you know, asking for the malignant hyperthermic, uh, cart, discontinue the volatile anesthetic, uh, get that charcoal filter and put on my hundred percent oxygen just to, you know, get uh, around to treating it if it was that uh, sort of episode. Um, I also checked for some potential uh, signs and symptoms that they could be having, checked to see if they had any uh, muscle rigidity, if I could open their mouth. And uh, once uh, that was uh, shown to really be of nothing uh, a use, uh, we actually did just start treating for that malignant hyperthermia as uh, no fentanyl was helping, nothing else was really going. Um, so we got all the medicines in the room, the dantrolene, started giving her her 2.5 milligrams per kilograms of it, uh, got some blood gases, another IV, we got a Foley, got a creatinine kinase level, and pretty much after that first dose of dantrolene, uh, her end-tidal CO2 rapidly decreased from about you know the upper 90s to the 60s and then into the 50s with repeated doses. So we figured we were doing the right thing here, and at that point, uh, we also called the uh, a malignant hyperthermia um, hotline so that we could get some more advice to make sure we were kind of treating this the correct way. Okay. And they were able to kind of help you out with like the, you know, finishing, taking care of the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Cause they gave a little bit more advice on it and exactly what our next steps should be. Um, I work at a, um, a smaller hospital that actually doesn't even have a pediatric ICU ward. Um, so that was one of the big things uh, we were curious about as to how we're going to manage this patient 
afterwards. So we went through everything on how to get in contact with the um, uh, the closest hospital that had the pediatric ICU and how we should be transporting this patient and what medicines they should be on. Uh, just all the things that we usually are uh, trained to do, but it's nice to hear from another uh, physician on that we're doing everything correctly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, and um, and yeah. So, what were the outcomes of the case? Well, the patient actually ended up doing really well um, in the um, ambulance. She needed two more uh, doses of the dantrolene to get her end tidal back down, uh, but then uh, she was extubated later that day in stable condition at the outside hospital. And then a few weeks later, uh, she actually had her dental cleaning and uh, had no issues. And I think she was discharged uh, later the next day. That's great to hear. Yeah. So, I mean, that that kind of, I think that covers the case. And, and there's more details about the case that you wrote about in the article that we that was published in the magazine as well, which we'll link to the, the online version of that for everyone. Um, so moving on to the, just kind of another, like looking back on the case, you know, especially as you were starting to get into the process of writing the case report and, and sort of reviewing the events and everything, I just had some questions about, you know, about that process and, and some of your thoughts on that. So, you know, what, what would you say one of the major lessons was for you coming out of this experience? Well, I mean, a really big lesson really is just to not be afraid to call for help, especially in a difficult situation like this. I mean, I know that uh, we're physicians, we've gone through all the training, we're at, you know, we're very high up in the food chain in the medical world, but really shouldn't be afraid to call for some help and another hand. I mean, there is no way I could have done everything that we did in the OR by myself from getting the IVs and the ABGs and getting the cart and talking to the other physicians at the other hospitals. I mean, I had my nurse anesthetist helping, um, the nursing supervisor came in, about six other OR nurses came in. I mean, without their help, it, I don't think it would have been treated uh, quite as well, and it may not have been quite as good an outcome. I know you said this is a pretty rare occurrence, right? And, and you were saying that some of the people from your residency program had not experienced it at all in their long careers, but did you have any prior experience um, that prepared you and your team to handle this? Well, uh, for the team, I know that the hospital does a yearly uh, MH uh, protocol drill, so they actually know where to go and what to get. And even when I was telling people what to do, most of the nurses essentially kind of knew what we needed to have done. Uh, but in med school, I actually had a uh, experience of a potential MH case. Um, I was doing this uh, rotation at an ambulatory surgery center, and uh, I just remember uh this patient's end tidal CO2 got up into the upper 90s. They were tachycardic. Same exact things were happening. And I'll just always remember really how quickly um, the anesthesiologist there kind of went through a differential of either malignant hyperthermia, or in this case, it was a thyroid storm from an unrecognized a thyroid history, and just how he treated it and how uh, just how quickly and uh, well he acted. That really helped me remember, like, if it is MH episode, I'm worried about it, go and treat it. <laughs> it's worse. It's better to treat it than to wait and have uh, something bad happen, essentially. Right, right. Um, and, you know, I mean, so thinking about this experience, having been through it, do you think there's anything that you will do differently in the future if you're presented with, uh, you know, another one of these rare instances? Well, I really think we handled this one correctly. Um, we've pretty much acted very quickly. We treated all the signs and symptoms. Um, a big thing I did notice, though, uh, since this was a little child, we had to give her a good amount of fluid to actually get all the dantrolene in her system. Um, it's about 60 milliliters per vial of dantrolene. 
there is another drug out there called Ryanadex. It's a bit more expensive, but it's very similar to Xantrolene, but it actually only pushes uh, five milliliters at a time, which I think for a pediatric patient would be pretty uh, nice. So um, we inquired about potentially getting that at the hospital, especially for these pediatric cases, but we'll kind of see how that goes. But I, I like the way that we treated it. I think that next time I saw an end tidal CO2 creeping up that fast, I probably wouldn't hesitate as long as I did, even though it was only a minute or so, but uh, I'd uh, treat it a little bit quicker, probably. Okay. And that kind of wraps up the questions I had for you. I, I did want to ask you, though, just um, sort of speaking broadly about this, um, you know, you wrote a lot of your case report was kind of just detailing like what to look out for, how to respond to it. Um, and, and I just, you know, is there anything that maybe you wanted to add to that? If, um, if, you know, some of our listeners are thinking that, you know, well, you know, maybe there've been cases where I thought this was happening or, you know, I've never seen it before, but it might happen in the future. Like what to look out for? Well, really big things, um, at least that I saw, well, the end tidal CO2 creeping up uh, to a level that you can't uh, hyperventilate or uh, treat with a, uh, narcotics or volatile anesthetics, um, and it still increases, that's a big sign that it's uh, one of the few um, really bad diseases out there like malignant hyperthermia, um, neuroleptic malignant syndrome, uh, thyroid storm, all of those uh, things. Um, Also, if they're super tachycardic, they have some significant muscle rigidity, especially in their jaw. If you can't open their jaw and they have a significant masseter uh, spasm, that's a big sign that they could be having a malignant hyperthermic event as well. Um, Then really lab values are pretty helpful as well. Obviously you can't see a lab value, but I mean, on this patient, uh, we got an ABG probably three and a half minutes after uh, the case, uh, after we noticed it was an MH episode and she was quite acidotic. So it was pretty quick to show that she had this acidosis from this. So that is helpful as well. Okay. Well, that's great then. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for joining us on the show and and, and detailing some of these things. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on the show. Thank you so much to Dr. Shackner for being our guest this month on On the Case. And thank you to all of you for joining us. I would like to recommend that if you were listening to Dr. Shackner explain what went into the writing of this case report, and you were thinking that you two have a case to submit, please consider doing so. You can go to our website at anesthesiologynews.com slash case submission and follow the instructions there. And there will also be a link to that in the show notes. Lastly, if you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or a review. It helps others to find the show and we would greatly appreciate that. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Anesthesiology News Presents On the Case was produced this month by me, Michael DePoe Wilson. It was edited by Ken Christensen. Our music comes from Blue Dot Studios. Our editorial director is James Pruden. The rest of the team is Richard Tordo, Justin Kaback, Blake Dennis, Betty Zong, Kristen Janicone, Lucia Scanlon, Kwong Yi Chung, Sophia Lee, and Sam Steinfeld. On the Case is a project of Anesthesiology News, the most widely read publication for the specialty, and the McMahon Publishing Group.